Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. What my aim uh, is to touch upon various issues dealing with debt. Debt is the unifying theme uh, of my talk, and it encompasses pretty much all my uh, research uh, since the This Time is Different book. And let me sort of highlight the three areas that I'm going to touch upon. Uh, the first, uh, which is in Decade of Debt, uh, the short uh, book that, that Ken and I just put out, uh, has to do with the sequencing and the time profile of crises. So essentially, how does a crisis unfold? And specifically, where are we in that process? Uh, the second theme of my talk is literally after the fall. After the fall is a research piece that I did with Vincent Reinhardt, my husband, for the Federal Reserve's Jackson Hole Conference last year. The third theme and final theme that I'm going to touch on today is uh, – Ongoing work, which is the uh, my my most recent and ongoing uh, research work with a student of mine at the University of Maryland, uh, Maria Belen Sprancia, on a paper called "The Liquidation of Government Debt," and essentially that has brought forward or has renewed uh, in the public jargon the term financial repression. And basically, uh, why that is relevant is because it has to do with that theme of the resolution of crises. Um, some of them, as, as I will speak on later, the most extreme forms of crisis resolution involve explicit restructuring, uh, if not outright default on debt. That's the most extreme cases, and that's what we're seeing where I came from in, 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 uh, yesterday in the European context. But part of the resolution, and this is just sort of anticipating where I'm going, I'm giving the roadmap, uh, part of uh, the resolution to the big bulge in government debt at the end of World War II involved financial repression. What is financial repression? In a nutshell, financial repression involves a tighter connection between government and the financial industry. Uh, the outcome is much more heavy-handed regulation. But the bottom, real bottom line is very low or even negative real interest rates, uh, which and more directed credit to the government, uh, which is sort of the logical thing that you would think that a government that has a lot of debt and that worldwide appetite for debt uh, is somewhat diminished in the private sector. And so creative regulatory mechanisms arise to place those debts at very low interest rates. And I will so, – so and part historically, part and parcel – of financial repression, as I said, involved elements of direct, more directed credit, uh, elements of suppression of interest rates, 
by the way, Operation Twist is also not a new concept. It's we're dusting off a lot of old things these days, um, and more elements of international barriers to capital movements, i.e., the bad word is capital controls. Of course, today we're not calling them capital controls. We're calling them macroprudential regulation. Um, so, so that's the roadmap. Um, and then hopefully, you know, uh, we can have a nice discussion afterwards. Uh, let me briefly start with the time profile. So think of a flow chart of how these crises evolve and how they mature. In the initial phase, you have some sort of financial liberalization, financial innovation. In the U.S., the big item was the subprime, the securitization of mortgage debts. Now, during that financial liberalization period, the financial innovation period, credit is very ample. Credit is relatively cheap. Uh, and we're all geniuses in that period. It's, it's asset prices boom. Uh, economic activity performs strongly. And during that boom phase, le leverage is built up significantly. This is private leverage, usually. I will talk about the Greek situation and the Italian situation also, which are somewhat different from this pattern. But this is the most common pattern that is revealed in history. We have, we have that in our book, and we also have that in our, in our recent uh, American Economic Review paper after the fall, I mean, um, from financial crash to debt crisis. And so during that boom period, asset prices uh, and credit expansion uh, ultimately end as they have ended for you know, not decades, but hundreds of years, badly. Uh, so a financial crisis, a banking crisis ensues. Now, the banking crisis does two fundamental things to morph itself into a sovereign or fiscal crisis. Uh, financial crises are associated with very protracted and severe recessions. They're not your run-of-the-mill recessions that you overcome quickly. Uh, and we've been saying this. Uh, Ken Rogoff wrote, and I wrote a paper called um, The Aftermath of Financial Crises. We presented it at the American Economic Association meetings in January of 2009, saying this is not a standard recession. Deleveraging is a long process. And so it, it and, and, and the bottom line of those deep and protracted recessions is that government revenues take a severe hit. So fiscal finances, e even without any fiscal stimulus or anything else, and we have experts on fiscal stimulus uh, in this room, but even without that, you get a big negative shock to fiscal finances. Now you throw on top of that, uh, this is a key point, that since World War II, this was not the case in pre-World War II financial crisis, but in post-World War II financial crisis, a blur, there's a blur between what is private debt and public debt. That is, what are private debts before the crisis become public debts afterwards. The most extreme case of that is Ireland. Ireland had debt to GDP of 30%. By any metric, it had an incredibly 
tight ship on the fiscal side. Now Ireland's finances are pushing on Italy's and will probably overtake Italy, not because the government had a Greek-style chronic problem of overspending and, and inability to raise revenues, but because they took on massive amounts of bank debt. In the U.S., we had Fannie and Freddie. In 2010, Fannie and Freddie were shifted. If you look at the flow of fund statistics from the uh, Federal Reserve, in, in, the, in 2010, Fannie and Freddie were shifted from the private sector balance sheet to the public sector balance sheet. That transfer was 25 percentage points of GDP. So, so the general government debt in the United States, general government includes federal, state and local, and government enterprises. And Fannie and Freddie became a government enterprise. And that added 25 percentage points in one shot to our general government debt. So between the between the government taking on private, and this is continuing in Europe, okay? Let me say that this is not an academic uh, point that I'm making. This is as we speak. Europe is poised for another major round of bank recapitalization. And in English, bank recapitalization will mean that those debts that are now in the hands of the banks will end up in the balance sheet of the government. Uh, and so this process of the, 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 the blurring of the lines between private debt and public debt is still ongoing. Uh, my expectation is that we still have some of that in the future ahead of us uh, in the United States with the completely unresolved mortgage uh, debt overhang uh, that, we, that we have. So the sequence is the financial crisis morphs into a fiscal crisis, and that's where we are. Now, the fisc- how, do, how, do we, how do we get out of that? Uh, and this, so what happens after the financial crisis became a fiscal crisis? Well, there are uh, different possibilities of bringing down public debts. One is you luck out and you grow a lot. Very rare. Historically, really, really rare. So if you look, for example at cases where you can say, now that economy just grew its way out of its debt. You got Ireland essentially in the 1980s in which, you know, the Ireland of the early 80s had a government uh, with debt over 100% and then just incredibly rapid growth whittled that debt down pretty sharply. But that's, that's an outlier. Most often countries do not grow their way out of debt. Growth contributes. Growth contributed importantly after World War II. But it was definitely not the sole factor. So then the second item is austerity. Uh, and you have fiscal austerity, not because, you know, I am not one of these believers in that fiscal austerity is actually expansionary. Uh, certainly not contemporaneously. Uh, fiscal austerity is austerity. It has, you know, uh, um, short-term effects that are, are contractionary, even though it's the medicine you need to take. It's like when I go to the doctor, I says, Carmen, look, you know, if you want to lose weight, you got to exercise and diet. And I said, look, unfortunately, I want to lose weight, but I don't want to exercise and diet. Uh, and, and, and that's, you know, um, but that's essentially, you know, without being facetious or anything, but that is fiscal austerity. It, you know, you, you're, you're trading intertemporally. 
Okay? Um, so if you look at the very sharp debt reductions after World War II, also you see the U.S. ran balanced budgets for extended periods of time. You see, you know, components of fiscal austerity, fiscal discipline, if not outright austerity, okay? Um, then you have, in the most extreme cases, the very controversial issue that Europe is tackling right now is the issue of re debt restructuring. So this is in this. I'm in in that time sequence. I'm now talking about my second item on the agenda, which is how do you get out of this debt resolution? Um, restructuring. Uh, you know, we seem to think that, oh, no, that's something that happens in Latin America. That's something that happens in Africa. It happens in Asia. It doesn't happen in Europe. Wrong. If you look from, and, and this is documented in our work, just turn to the page in, in the decade of debt. Look at the page, page on Greece. From Greece gained independence in 1830. And since 1830, Greece has been in a state of default or restructuring 48% of the years. <laughs> okay? So the last restructuring episode for Greece began in the Depression in 1932, but only concluded in 1964, when the final debts expired, that unpaid debts expired. Okay, so the, the thought that we are, this is uncharted waters, this is advanced, no, no, no. Uh, this, is, this is an old story. A lot of the advanced economies saw restructurings, either very explicit or more under the rug variety, in, in, in the Depression years. We've just forgotten. We live in a post-World War II framework where the only ones that had defaulted in that new defaults, I mean, in the post-World War II uh, framework were the emerging markets. That was not always the case. And we're revisiting that proposition very seriously now. In my own view, the debts of Greece, Ireland, and Portugal will have to be restructured for different reasons. Greece uh, has, you know, and this is not, by the way, Oh, no, you mean that they can do restructuring and not have to do austerity. No, this is not in lieu of. Because if you don't do the austerity, you're going to have primary uh, fiscal deficits and you're going to wind up in the same place pretty quickly. But it, it, let's do the math. You have nominal debt to nominal GDP. Nominal GDP has two components. One is growth and the other one is inflation. I, I don't envision most of Europe becoming Singapore or, you know, East Asia overnight in terms of, you know, sustained high levels of growth. They're, 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 they're not, that's not a probable scenario. I don't envision Europe using full-blown inflation to liquidate its debts. So if you really have limited scope for expanding the denominator, nominal GDP, you're going to have to work on the numerator, which is debt. And in the case of Greece, it is a fiscal problem. It is predominantly a fiscal problem. Private debts are, are problematic, but they're not of that order of magnitude. The case of Ireland is extremely unfortunate, but it's a different animal. This is not, people think I'm being melodramatic when I, I, I make this statement, but I am not. This is data from the World Bank and IMF joint um, 
their SDDS, Standard Data Dissemination System, quarterly data reveals that gross external debt, this is public, all public plus all private external debts in Ireland are over 1,000% of GDP, 10 times GDP. Only Iceland matches, has historically matched that number. I mean, I, I, this data that I have is in the public domain. This is not with the sources and the whole time series. So, so in the case of Ireland, it's not policy and decisiveness. It's not the inability of the government to, to, to move very quickly in the right directions. They've done very courageous things, but they started. They started with the scale of a problem. So the only way that, in my view, Ireland avoids a restructuring is if it doesn't require further recapitalization of banks. But I don't think that's in the cards. Right now, as I said, the gross external debt numbers are over 1,000% of GDP. And deposits in countries like Greece and Ireland are not declining. They are bleeding. Uh, bank deposits are draining. They're being shifted you, you have capital flight. This is, you know, anyone that looked at Latin America in the 1980s knows this all too well. Cap, plain, plain capital flight. Uh, that leaves banks in an even more precarious situation because they don't have access to international financing. Their domestic deposit base is eroding, and they still have these unresolved assets. So what I am getting at is for for reasons pertaining to the weakness, extreme weakness of the banking sector, I think Ireland will end up restructuring its, its, its debt as well. Uh, Portugal. Uh, Portugal, in a benign scenario, has current account deficits for the year 2013 between a 9 and 10 percent of GDP. Now, this is just accounting. If you have a current account deficit, you need a capital account surplus, i.e., you need to finance that current account deficit, because you're borrowing from the rest of the world. And you ask, who's going to lend to Portugal? It's not the private sector. They would need funding from the ECB and from the EFSF to be able to continue. So uh, this brings me to the conclusion that these three countries, for different reasons, are going to wind up in the extreme case of restructuring. Let me say a couple of things about growth expectations, uh, unemployment expectations, and turn to my final uh, commentary on financial repression. So in the extreme cases, which I right now, ring fencing would seem to be those three, uh, Greece, Ireland, and, and, and Portugal. Italy and Spain are there on the brink. There's a huge, I mean, to say that, that, that it, the sense of outright fear that you get talking to people in Italy is, is, an, is not, not an overstatement. Um, because, again, for different reasons, Italy, because of its public finances, but they don't have much private debt. To, to, they didn't have the big debt surge before the crisis. And Spain, not because of its fiscal finances so much, because they still have fiscal space, but they really haven't resolved their banking sector problem yet, which is going to be more cost to the government, uh, are also in that borderline where I don't think they'll need to restructure, but this is a, you know, they're, they're in the borderline. What about the U.S., right? What about, uh, what about the U.S.? What about 
the UK? What about what about? Well, in the paper after the fall, um, we pointed out. And this, I spoke at Jackson Hole right before Chairman Bernanke. This was not this August, but the August before, and Chairman Bernanke had given a fairly uplifting. Uh, um, assessment of the U.S. economy. And I said, look, you know, I, our, our work shows here that for the, these are for the crises in the advanced economies. Vincent and I, you know, separated out, we did all the crises together, and then we separated out advanced economy crises from emerging market crises. For the, the decade after the crisis, Growth is about one percentage point slower. In, so it's, it's not about negative growth. It's, we're not saying that, oh, this double dip is inevitable, that, you know, the end of the world. It's not about, it is about a muddling through scenario. It is not, you know, the end of the world and the apocalypse and biblical. And, and you know, but it is about not having as a framework the 10 years before the crisis, okay? The, the, that is not uh, the, the likely or probable scenario because during that decade after, after the fall, one of the common currents in all these, we have 15 different crises there, five of them from advanced economies. The years after the financial crisis have different monetary policies, different fiscal policies, different exchange rate outcomes. But the common thread is private sector deleveraging in all of those and getting rid of the private debt overhang. And that, on average, takes about seven years in this sample. For some countries like Japan, it took longer. For other countries in Scandinavia, they were able to short-circuit the process. Okay, but it is a dampening influence on growth. So it's a subpar growth. It's not about a collapse or anything, but it's a subpar growth environment. The most alarming statistic we had was that unemployment rates in the decade following severe financial crises actually remain about five percentage points higher than in the decade before the crisis. So unemployment rates are very so. We our low point was four, okay. So that's this is using the mechanical calculations based on the averages and the the descriptive uh, data that we have. That means a very stubbornly high unemployment rate. I'm not making a prediction. I'm saying that you know if you look at this data, in ten of the fifteen cases, unemployment did not return to its pre-crisis low in a full decade. It's, it's again, not, it's a lingering, prob, you know, it's a lingering slow recovery. Um, and, and this doesn't mean that you have quarterly sparks here and there that look great. That is actually, a, you know, a, you know, Japan had uh, some really exciting quarters in the, in, in, in the, in the 1990s just before the Asian crisis uh, uh, produced another round of downturn. Let me now turn to my last issue. So, so how, again, if, assuming that you do have fiscal austerity of varying degrees in the U.S. and elsewhere, 
the timing again is we can discuss that on the Q&A and my expectations is that fiscal austerity or, you know, a shift towards balanced budgets is, is, is in the offing. Um, assuming that you don't have growth collapses so that you do get some benefit from growth and from positive inflation to reduce the debt. What was the third element in post-World War II advanced economies? Because when I use the term financial repression, people say, oh, no, 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 that's China, that's India. No, no, that was the U.S. and that was the U.K. After World War II, you know, I am probably older than many of you, not all of you, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, that we had Regulation Q, which capped deposit rates uh, at zero for checking accounts and kept them extremely low until the early 80s. Uh, that was one example of financial repression. Um, think of this chart that I'm about to describe. It is a chart that has three... Okay, it is a chart for real... In, that is, treasury rates adjusted for inflation. So it's real interest rates, inflation-adjusted interest rates for 21 advanced economies. And I have three lines in that chart, frequency distributions. From 1945 to 1980, from 1981 to 2007, and from 2008 to the present. The upshot between 1945 and 1980, real interest rates on treasuries were negative about almost half of the time, about 49% of the time. The era of financial liberalization, you know, we got rid of, of Glass-Steagall, we got rid of Regulation Q, uh, capital markets became global, 80 to 2007, real interest rates were negative less than 10% of the time. Since the crisis, since 2008, interest rates in the advanced economies have been negative 52% of the time. Uh, so the issue of financial repression has resurfaced. And you go to Italy, you go to Greece, you go to Ireland, uh, Portugal, the, you, the debts of the government are literally, through moral suasion, being shoved down the banks and the pension funds. These are the captive audiences. You, 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 so financial repression really is about doing what the Japanese have done extremely well, in, which is going after captive audiences, placing your debts domestically. And the targets, the most obvious targets, are pension funds, insurance companies, and banks. And if you look at the IMF data, this is nothing that I put together, but the IMF Capital Markets Group does this, and you look at the share of government debt that's in the balance sheet of Greek banks, that's in the balance of UK banks, that's in the balance of Irish banks, all those, we have become more increasingly uh, home-biased in our investments. And not all of this is voluntary. Um, it's not all, you know, I, look, I am not expecting, I will conclude by saying I am not expecting the Financial Repression Act of 2012, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about regulations that, if you read the footnotes, here and there, uh, 
start introducing more barriers, more. Um, the emerging markets have raised uh, all kinds of varieties of capital controls, and they have do done so with the approval of the international community and the IMF. And in the advanced economies, we need to keep capital in. The emerging markets want to keep some of that hot money out. And I think the, the not in a big bang way, but in a sort of footnote way, we are moving, we're going through the cycle of from full liberalization to more financial controls. And that, I think, is, is, is the, where, where the next cycle is taking us, and I'll conclude there. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.